Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you today by the Western Growers Association, supporting growers that grow the best medicine in the world. Find out more at WGA.com. Now here's your Voices of the Valley host, Director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology, Dennis Donahue. Welcome back to another edition of Voices of the Valley. This is Dennis Donahue, and I'm joined again by uh, my good friend and partner, Candace Wilson. Candace, good to see you. Hi, how are you today? I'm terrific, and I'm really excited. Uh, you know, our audience doesn't know we had a heck of a pre-call, and uh, we wish we recorded that. So we'll just tease everyone with, we've got a great episode to look forward to. It was a great teaser, and it's going to be for sure one of the best episodes. You can count on that already. Well, and the other thing we've done, we've doubled up on guests. So we've got uh, Larry Taylor from the uh, Yield Lab and Mark DeSantis from Bloomfield AI. And I think we're going to have a terrific conversation. What I'd like to do is, first of all, ask each of our guests to uh, introduce themselves, their background, and what they're currently doing. And then we'll stop it there and jump in. So Larry, let's start with you and then we'll have Mark introduce himself and then we'll come back because I want to talk a little bit about the Yield Lab and what you all do because I'm a big fan of the Yield Lab all over the world. Thank you folks for the opportunity to have this conversation. I started out in dairy country in upstate New York, got a degree in ag animal science in Cornell and 10 days later found myself in Kuala Lumpur doing farm credit for the National Ag Bank. So that's what got me into the international uh, ag arena and uh, I ended up working for Big Ag for 20 years introducing uh, new products into new markets, and then 20 years doing business development between East and West, uh, introducing American technologies into Asia or vice versa. And then uh, the Yield Lab got started, and we can talk about how the Yield Lab operates, but Yield Lab is uh, started in 2015, and the purpose is to uh, support innovations at the seed or Series A level uh, to get them up and running so that we can improve the efficiency of agriculture globally. So that's uh, how I got from uh, dairy to the conversation today. Good. Well, we're glad you made it. And uh, Mark DeSantis, welcome. Uh, talk a little bit about your background. And I think it's fair to say, in the best sense of the word, you have a really checkered past. And, we want to, <laughs> and we're, and we're going to want to talk about that a little bit because that, uh -huh. that all ties into that teaser conversation we, we were having that we cleverly forgot to record. So, Mark, welcome. By the way, the, checkered can be a good thing and not so good. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, mean, I was never implying otherwise. You know, but, but, but I thought just for clarification. I hope my mother's say, not listening. I hope my <laughs> yeah, mother's Yeah, exactly. Not there, there you go. Well, Mark, welcome. And uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about your Sure, past. thanks. Um, yeah, I've got a bit of an odd background. I started my life in federal government in different capacities in Washington, D.C., and I probably worked in every building in town, both on Capitol Hill and different government agencies. So I was in my mid-30s, early 30s, and I said, I'm not sure I want to do this uh, any longer. I was privileged to have worked there, and I had a great experience, but I really want to jump into this entrepreneurial thing. If anybody remembers the booming 2000 dot-com boom, and I said, I want to jump into that. It looks interesting. And I was moved back to Pittsburgh, where I was originally born, and found that there was a big booming business early version of free markets, what ended up becoming a REIT, I joined that early on. And it was a great experience. And I fell in love with entrepreneurship and I haven't looked back. I've started about four companies over the years. I teach at Carnegie Mellon, teach entrepreneurship actually. So I love tech. I'm one of those folks who, if a new gadget comes out, I buy it when it doesn't work. It's incredibly expensive. If I had just waited three weeks, I got a version that actually was would have worked and be cheaper. Got it. Can't do that. I got to have it when I see it. So I like things mechanical techie, and that was my inclination to get in tech. And I enjoy it also for the creative part of it, which I can talk about at some point. Along the way, I've started a number of companies, most of them AI. The most recent one, I actually joined not as a co-founder, but as CEO, 
originally as an advisor about two and a half years ago, a company called Bloomfield, which was spun out of Carnegie Mellon, as I said, where I teach. And we look at plants. So we basically look at plants and tell the grower the health and performance of that plant. We do that one plant at a time. And that's what we do. <laughs> that's it. That's all we do is nothing but that. And uh, so far, so good. Thank the privilege of being on the show. I, I got to admit, I'm a little intimidated. I have a total of two and a half years in ag tech. Before that, my ag experience consisted of my Italian grandfather growing tomatoes in his big garden in his backyard. So very limited experience in agriculture. It is an incredible industry. This is more interesting than any of the other varied industries I've been a part of. And I got to tell you, the timing, from what I can see, is just incredible. There's This industry is probably nothing like it since the Green Revolution back in the 60s. It's really incredible to be a part of this industry. Well, we're really excited to talk to you and hold on to some of those Carnegie Mellon thoughts because we're going to circle back to that. You know, Larry, you're part of the, you know, the Innovation Center. We've talked about how the game is global and, you know, we've got a global advisory board and I'm really excited you're on it, uh, you know, the yield lab representation, your particular background. And so, you know, kind of the genesis of this particular conversation was we wanted to get with the folks who are on the advisory board and begin to identify some of the most innovative things that are happening throughout the planet. And so we gave you that assignment and you came back with Mark. Tell me why. This is one of these interesting things is that agriculture needs the innovation to chase out the inefficiencies. And something that gets invented and made applicable in one location really needs to be replicated as far as the efficiency can be taken, which is global. So we had been introduced to Bloomfield Robotics here, but we saw a need for this seeing each plant, as Mark described, in Asian crops and in the Asian environment in circumstances that are evolving there, uh, reduction of available labor, needs for improvements in the farm wage and uh, the efficiency of, of harvesting. And so we saw the applications that wouldn't necessarily be seen if you're inventing something in a U.S. market, but we see what we've got the ability to introduce the technology for efficiencies there. So it's making it accessible globally. And I'm going to jump in because I already, I know Candace too well. She's going to get really excited and she's going to have three or four questions. So I'm getting one in real, real fast. When I hear looking at every plant, you know, simplistically, I go, okay, I want to know about the technology to do that. But how does that work from a cost standpoint? Can we do that in the specialty crop world? Uh, yeah, you can. <laughs> it's not as, as complicated as you might think. And the reason is that AI... You know, Carnegie Mellon, I think last year was rated number one in the world in artificial intelligence. In particular, as I said, the perception piece is really what CMU is within AI is particularly good at. You may know some of your listeners were here in Pittsburgh, but two or three of the largest autonomous vehicle companies are now headquartered here. Ford's autonomous vehicle group, others. There's a reason for that. It's again, back to the perception piece. So the idea that you can take uh, sort of the brains and eyes and kind of mimic human perception is the key. That works. After that works, the challenge is getting the camera and plant to come together. Now, people who are listening may think, well, isn't that what drones do? Drones fly over crops and look down at plants and render judgments. Not so much. And again, there may be drone people right now that are coming out of their chair and ready to have a fight. But there are certain plants that you have to get perpendicular to, to see the business end of the plant, whether it be the apples, the tendrils, the shoots, the grapes. You have to get perpendicular to the plant. If I were to think of an analogy... The military 30 years ago knew that in order to get better at doing what they do, they had to censorize everything. And aerial surveillance had been around since the 50s. What they discovered as they advanced aerial surveillance, whether it be satellites, drones, or whatever, that you still couldn't replace boots on the ground. Somebody needed to go into that jungle and look directly at the object of interest, no matter how good the imagery was from above. It's a pretty close analog to what I see in farming. 
That's where we are. We are boots on the ground. So we get perpendicular to those specialty crops, look at them in ways that even a human observer perhaps couldn't look at. And I can get into that if you like. Once you've got plant and camera to come together, it's actually a pretty solvable problem. The good news is for farms, they got wheels everywhere. They got ATVs, tractors, you name it. They're moving. Something's moving. All we do is hitch a ride on that vehicle and we're in business. So it's Candace, actually I'm very yield. scalable. I'm, I'm going to yield before you take the floor. I know you've got questions. <laughs> I do. I'm just so fascinated by this. So I just want to know a little bit more. And this is just the curiosity about how it is built in terms of, you say the perception piece is uh-huh. easy. Kind of yeah. walk us through how you yeah. get to the perception piece. How is that? Sure. Developed? Sure. And I hope my CTO will never listen to this because if he heard I said that something is that he's doing is easy, yeah. he would be upset. But here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just let me use a different phrase, Tim, if you're listening, it works. All right. <laughs> so what we do is there's different ways to image a plant. You can use LIDAR, you can zap it with a laser and get its shape, but it's not like taking a picture. So if I put LIDAR in the Louvre Museum, I'd see a bunch of squares and rectangles on the wall. If I want to know that that's a Mona Lisa, I'd take a picture of it. Now I can hit it with infrared, but we're back to, is that a Mona Lisa or is that just a rectangle on the wall? So we use the RGB image, the camera not unlike what's on your cell phone. So we can see everything, all the detail. Now it goes a step further. Because we are trying to duplicate the ability of a, say a viticulturalist who's a foot away from the plant, we not only have to see it, we have to perceive depth. So if I just took one picture of the plant, I kind of wouldn't know what's in front or behind or beside. Human vision, which we take for granted, can perceive depth. We know that this is in front of that, that's behind that. And because that's a little further away, it's actually probably the same size as the thing. You know, the thing in front is about the same size as the thing further back in the field. So we use two uh, lenses and then it's, you got to depend on the light. If you're outdoors, you can't depend on sunlight. So you have to create your own light source. So there's a flash component. And then it gets a little more complicated because when we image a plant, we're not just taking one picture of that plant. We're actually moving the camera at about 10 miles an hour past the plant. And just like human vision, we take this for granted. And now it gets more complicated to the point where I'm not even sure I understand how it works. But if you're moving past an object, your brain is knowing full well that you're moving past an object. It's processing everything in your field of view. It's processing not only the thing you're looking straight at, it's processing all the stuff that's in your peripheral vision. You're just not conscious of it. That's how you're able to see depth. It's the same thing here. We're passing the camera in front. So we're taking many images. We're fusing them. Believe it or not, we're creating a three-dimensional rendering of what we see. And then the AI at the pixel level is looking for patterns. So let's use an example. You know, we have customers in five countries. Let's use France. Right now, we have vineyards in Bordeaux that use our tool in Burgundy. We're looking for something called flavissance de Ray, which is a curling of the leaf unique to Bordeaux. The leaves take a certain shape. They have a certain color. They form a certain pattern. That pattern is distinguishable from other things that are on that leaf. Our images will see all the leaves on all the vines, on all the vineyards that we're working with in France, and it will suss out, that's flavissance de Ray. And it does that because just like a person, if you teach a child what a chair is, you show that child enough chairs, they're going to be able to know that that's a chair and not a stool or a couch. Our AI sort of works the same way. Now, it's actually a little more complicated than that. You're basically teaching the AI uh, reinforcement learning. You're teaching the AI what to see, but it also learns on its own. And I could, we could get into that discussion. But the bottom line is, once you've taught it what Flavisons Duray is, and you take those three-dimensional images at the pixel level, you can actually be, you can see Flavisons Duray. You know, you can count individual grapes. You can tell the grower, that there's mold on that grape, on that cluster, on that vine. Because in addition to imaging the plant, you're geolocating the plant. See, if I just went out and said, hey, dude, 
you've got disease somewhere in that vineyard. <laughs> if I can geolocate the plant, which I must do because we have GPS and there's some other clever things we do. I now can manage to the plant. And my theory, if I may, just one more point, because this is, I'm adamant about this. Farming to me, in my naive view, is a black box. And all of the sensing tools, soil sensors, water sensors, micro weather stations, even drones looking down at reflectance, they are doing a great job of measuring inputs. And then they use fancy AI to determine what is the likely outcome of that. Sort of a black box managing, let's say, to the acre. We look at the outcome of that. Our whole focus is the outcome. The outcome of water, nutrients, fertilizer, pesticide, sun is the plant. But if you're just aggregating that data, what you're doing is you're missing out on the opportunity to differentiate between plants. This apple tree is just a little bit better in absorbing water or doing what it does in the one next to it, and the one next to that, and the one next to that. And we believe that the way you're going to increase yield one day in specialty crops is you're going to manage to the plant. Now that day's who knows when and where that is. But in the meantime, the grower wants to know, tell me the condition of my plants. And when you can deliver that to the plant, you turn this black box into a factory without a roof because you can actually manage each piece of machinery on that farm in a way that you couldn't, where you have to treat it all as the same. I could go on and on. Now here oh I am just yammering up. We should go out to dinner. I love this. Okay. So I have, Dennis, I want to ask another question. You talked about how the machine also starts to like teach itself, recognize uh-huh. things from itself. Yep. Um, can this be used to, for the identification of new pests, emerging diseases, you know? So, yeah. So Candace, you ask a great question. Now this takes me to the next step. So if I back up and I say, what do you guys do? And we say, we help that grower identify the health and performance of each and every plant. So during the year, that farmer knows, hey, I've got to remedy this disease. Uh, This plant's under stress. Uh, Hey, it's not performing at the level it needs to. Maybe we need to add some water. That's all well and good. But then there's a deeper value that we bring, which is we are creating a digitalized database of every grape, leaf, vine, tendril, peach, pear, apple, whatever. We right now digitalize about 9 billion grapes. And we're only two years old in a startup. We probably have the largest digitalized database of grapes in the world, and we're just a little startup in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We've looked at 12 varieties of grapes. We've done it in five countries under different trellising systems. We've looked at wine grapes, table grapes, juice grapes. There'll be a point at which, and AI is such that every grape you see, you get a little smarter about the next grape. We are accumulating a knowledge base of grapes, leaves, tendrils, vines, trellising systems that doesn't exist in the world. Now imagine doing that for apples, cannabis. I mean, I could just oranges, grapefruits. That knowledge base itself, Candace, that wisdom of having seen 35 billion grapefruits in 17 locations over 10 years using a hundred different inputs on one patch of ground or many patches of ground. Imagine what a botanist, a viticulturalist, an agronomist, a farmer, Bayer, you know, Kubota, I could go on, could do with that data. And that is the vision of this. Well, Candace and I were around the table, you know, a few years ago when we initiated the, uh, what's now the Global Harvest Automation Initiative. So I guess the question is, you know, besides the analytical opportunity this offers any of the players you just mentioned, this data library sounds like it can connect with some of our desires for trying to crack the code on some of the uh, automation challenges. Exactly. 
that if you think about different audiences for this information, you've got the farmer who's growing the crops and needs that to do things in the field during the year. You've got the people who provide fertilizer and other resources who are now informed by how their specific fertilizer impacted that plant on that square foot versus another square foot on another part of the farm and another farm and another location. So you have the connection between the input sensors and the outcome to the plant level. So you have those folks who want to get their hands on it. You might have the insurers who look at this and say, all right, you're going to measure that plant repeatedly over the course of the year, and this damage is going to come in. And I want to know what damage was done to that farm. Well, I can tell you down to the tree. I can tell you if you want to adjust your actuarial rates, what you should do, given the fact that we now digitalize 300 farms in a 300 square mile area. I can also then inform, all right, now we're going to put some robots in here. We're going to put some robot apple picking machines in here. And we need to know how to adjust and adapt those machines. Well, we've been digitalizing this farm for two years now, and we can tell you with high level precision how to deploy these systems. In other words, once you've digitalized the farm, and by digitalized, what I mean by that is you have literally created in digital form everything on that farm <laughs> to the pixel, three-dimensional. So that farmer who's just scanned 500 acres that afternoon with a glass of wine, go sauntering into their vineyard without leaving their kitchen and find a extraordinary level of detail overlaid with analysis. It's, it's an infinite number of possibilities. So, so question, so let's just take a 500 acre, whether it's vineyard, farm or what. So given what you do, yeah. how many customers are there? So well, for, I mean, for instance, does the grower become your customer and then the grower goes, okay, now I have an asset. Besides farming, I now have a digital or an information asset that other entities might be interested in. Well, I mean, who's another, the customer? Uh, another great question. That's uh, good. I'm glad it was a good one. because All was, right. All right. I was, so, <laughs> I was a little concerned. All right. So let me give you some examples. And we actually have, I'm going to give you variations of customers that we have. Uh, we have one customer that's a very, very, very large buyer and seller of fruits and vegetables and, a, you know, sort of in the middle. And they're taking, they're buying the grapes or buying the fruits and they're selling the whole foods and what have you. And they're saying, all right, we're your customer. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to pay to have your analytic service one of the farms from which we buy grapes. We're going to pay for it. They get all of your services for free. Now, we also get access to those same analytics. Right. So now we have a look ahead on their crops. So we know what their yield is going to be. Very highly accurate, highly precise yield prediction. We know how their crops are performing. We know when they know. And so when we sit down, we together can come up with a fair price. That's a model we're applying and it's working. So that's one customer. Okay. Now it goes a little further than that because you also have chain of custody. So I know that those apples came off of that tree and maybe I can then use that when I sell it to Whole Foods and put a little QR code on the bag and say, these apples came from that tree. Here's the digital version of that. So I can put my QR code, my phone over a QR code, and I can actually see what tree those apples came from. That's hypothetical, right? There's the industrial farmer. The farmer themselves, that one's an obvious one. Hey, we grow these crops in another condition. There's an aspect of that where that grower may accumulate enough knowledge because their farm is enough sufficient size when they may sell that expertise to other farmers. So we've seen this disease, as you referenced, Candace, we've seen this infestation more than anyone else. We've digitalized it. We're happy to give you the results. You pay us a fee, you have access to our knowledge base. It may be, and that's, we have that. <laughs> it may be that the people who have the wheels I think there's a battle going on right now. It's not visible to everyone. And this is my theory, and I know your viewers out there have decades more experience in this industry than I do, but here we go. I think there's a battle underway, and it's a three-way battle. It's a battle between the people who provide the fertilizer and the, all the things that the seed, 
and all that. And they're saying, we've got to get into this digitalized plant thing. We are most qualified to do that because we sell seed, we sell fertilizer to all these farms. We have access to the farmer. We will digitalize the data. We will partner with whoever to get the data and we will digitalize it. We dominate. And then we'll sell that data to everyone else in the industry. That's anything to do with the farm. There's another group who have wheels and they're saying, all due respect, we're also on that farm, but we're moving around. And our wheels, plus some censoring, can get that data. We'll digitalize it and we'll sell it to you there. And then there's a third group. And these are the big data houses. So this is the Googles and the Microsofts who have ag businesses. And they're saying, you know, when it comes to digital anything, all due respect to, you know, you guys that do pine seed, we got this. We're going to, and then we're going to sell it to you guys. And that battle, I think, is underway. And at the center of that is digitalization. Well, don't forget the producer. We see this is where I become not well, additionally not so complicated. Who owns the ground? Who puts it in? This is the fun part. Yeah, no, that it's kind of like, wait a minute. If it's our land, our crop, then it's our data. So this is the fun part. So I think at the center of that, the battlefield where the battles fought is actually everyone's forgot. It's on the farm. It's the producer. That's where the battle is. I knew I liked you. (laughs) Yeah. And some and the producer saying, all due respect to you guys, really. I you know. Utmost respect. I'm happy to join you in this battle, but you're not going to walk out with all the value. So I think the producers now can say to one of these parties, in a sense, form an alliance with one of them and say, I'm in this with you here. Now, if we're going to digitalize what we're growing and you're going to use that data, I want a piece of that. So if you're going to take the extract the wisdom from my 10,000 acre farm and you're going to tractor company, we're going to put sensors on your tractor, by all means, have at it. And you're going to extract wisdom from that, which you're going to then package and sell to everyone else. Great. I get a piece. So, you know, I guess, I guess kind of the simplistic analogy where, where we all blissfully signed away all our, without being political, we blissfully said, sure, I want Facebook. Sure, I want Google. Accept, accept, accept. When it comes to uh, down on the farm, no, 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 not so fast. That's really with the game going on, right? And what's interesting is it's dynamic information. So I have two sorts of information if I'm collecting data on a farm, right? I'm collecting geolocated data about that patch of ground and the soil and everything under it and all the features of it, the, you know, position with respect to the sun. And so I'm going to, for as long as we're all alive, I'm going to digitalize that patch of ground. I'm going to everything here is snow about anything that's grown on that square foot for, for forever because I've digitalized it. And that is useful in its own way. And I know that because all the inputs that are going into it. So I know how productive that patch of ground is because I know all the inputs because I'm the grower. But then I'm also looking at the thing that's growing on it which itself is dynamic. It's dynamic in a different way because there's always new plants. You know, I always joke that when we monitor a vine, we know that's vine 607 and we're actually naming that vine and we're going to follow that vine for the next 20 years. And I said to one of our growers in France, naively, we said, you know, how, what kind of records do you keep of the production of a, say an individual vine or how, how far back you got it? This vineyard, a very, very high-end vineyard in Bordeaux who will remain unnamed said, see that building over there? We have 350 years of records. That's what kind of records we keep. What you guys do differently, though, is a lot of that's, you know, quill pen and parchment. This is digitalized. I can go back to this. I can see it. I can see the results. I can see the changes over time. He said, this will change for me. You know, guys, again, I always say this to myself when I think of this. It's, first of all, this is the best opportunity I've ever been associated with bar none. And I've been in a, different, a lot of different industries. And I keep thinking, am I on another planet? Maybe it's just me. I'm completely naive and I don't know anything about anything. <laughs> and I'm on my own lava land. And, you know, Mark's got to get his feet on the ground. But before I did this business, my last business used AI to inspect road surfaces. You basically use imaging and you put the cell phone in front of a windshield 
you take the video and the AI would isolate the road and then it would identify the features on asphalt and concrete and predict where potholes would form, sort of like precancerous potholes, alligator cracks, plot cracks. I'll take one I'm, of those. Do you still have that? <laughs> yeah, it's a company called, it's a company called Robotics. That's okay, it still exists. I want one. Yeah. <laughs> Can I interrupt you for one yeah, second? Too? Yeah, yeah. This is completely different. Can you do this? Like, because you said precancer cells, does the technology exist to like survey for skin cancer? Well, if you look at medical field now, if I drew back from the picture and talked about perception, if you are a visual inspector of anything, if you are in a business where you are using humans to visually inspect the hulls of ships, x-rays for cancer, road surfaces, bridges, plants, you are going to be replaced by image processing and AI. And that's happening now. So even people working on using a cell phone camera to say, is that mole cancerous? So I think the thing about AI, which is my third AI company, people overestimate and underestimate AI at the same time. There's something called, um, it, he's a professor at Carnegie Mellon, it's called Moravik's Paradox. It's kind of interesting. He basically says things that we take for granted, machines struggle with, things that we struggle with, machines are very good at. So ask somebody to divide uh, you know, 14,569 by 7,345, and we'd be like, ah, machine, it's instant. Ask a machine to pick up a glass of milk and, or ask a human, and it's a very different thing. So when you think of AI, think of not about the generalized kind of AI, fancy robot. Think of AI as once I know the problem and I know the task and I have all the understanding of the task, AI is your, probably going to be your answer once you've bounded the problem and defined it very precisely. So going back to Bloomfield, and you know, we've had a deal in the last couple of years in the Salinas Valley where not so much this year, maybe this past year, but so every plant, is AI the answer to early detection of diseases as they're forming if you wanted to be right on top of them, you know, like Pythium or, and Larry, you know this, I always get my acronyms, you know, the INBS or, but, uh, you know, if, if you wanted to pick up something early in the curve, really, because, you know, that matters. So this ability to look at a plant, you're seeing things develop in real time. And, and, yeah. and can, you can extrapolate well, from there if you're the farmer and you have right. that information. Here's the simplest thing I say. They say, well, what about uh, infrared and all these other sensors? And I'm not denigrating those other sensing modes. That's fine. But the way I like to say it in simple terms, if you can see it, whether it's a foot away or with the jeweler's loop, if you can see it, and by see it, I mean identify it and know what it is, we can too, period. That's AI right now. It has reached a point after about 20 years, uh, 30 years of experimentation and learning and failure particularly on the perception side, if you can see it, we can see it. By you, meaning if you were a viticulturalist, an agronomist, experienced horticulturalist with 20 years of looking at plants, if you can see it and know what it is, we can see it also. Well, let me ask you a question. You know, we, as we've gone through this harvest automation deal, and you've mentioned looking at trellis design, looking at individual, you know, grape by grape. One of the discussions we've had is in terms of accelerating harvest automation is we've got yeah. to get to 2D trellis redesign. Is it possible to navigate 3D canopies and, you know, get right to the harvest possibilities on the automation side from, a, yeah. let's say from a citrus standpoint, or do we have to wait 20 years until all the no. orchards are redesigned? No, I think what you'll have is, again, I always have to caveat this. There are people out there that are far more expert on design of trellising and all that. But I think what you'll ultimately have is the two are going to converge. So the design and the capabilities will converge. What I mean by that, if you took a picture of an assembly line, a Ford assembly line in 1925, and then took a picture of it in 1955, and then took a picture of it in 2000 or even more recently, you would see that not necessarily that the robots changed 
and got fancier and fancier. It's that the robots changed and the assembly process changed. The two things together converge. So the trellising systems and what have you, it's not that they need to be radically redesigned. It's that they will slowly evolve to match the capabilities at that moment in time of the robots. Eventually, the two will reach a point where they're kind of optimized. It's sort of like how cars are made now. There's not a lot more you can do to a car factory to get it more efficient with having smarter robots or a more efficient design of an assembly process. It's pretty off, 100 years of doing that. The two are sort of both together kind of fused. So when I see the redesign of the farm to make robots more accessible, I see that as a slow evolution as the robots themselves get smarter and the two sort of moving together. You know, the conversation we were having before we got on the air, we, you know, what kind of triggered it was just an automation adoption acceleration conversation in general. And, you know, are the tools, thanks to the work of the universities now in the, uh-huh. in the, in the marketplace, and that's where you really go or, you know, and you with your Carnegie Mellon uh, stripes and just that real substantive strength in, in AI, if you're looking to be more intentional and to accelerate, yeah. And I'm sure part of the answer is mix and match, but I was just really fascinated by how you described what made Carnegie Mellon distinct and unique, period. You know, not industry, not academic. It's just, it really stands on its own merits. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Pittsburgh, uh, uh, a guy named Herb Simon, who's a Nobel laureate, coined the term in the 50s of artificial intelligence back in, it was a conference at Dartmouth back in the 50s. Back in the 50s, they were thinking about artificial intelligence. Now, there were many failures along the way because people realized it's a lot harder to understand human speech than we thought. It's a lot harder to move a robot without killing somebody. You know, it's all these things were discovered and took decades. And CMU was really at the beginning of that. For years, decades, people said, mocked, kind of CMU said, you robots, that's 2050 before you'll see an autonomous vehicle, this and that. Now, the military was watching this. The military confronted an issue with, hey, we've got all these sensors, but we're still using humans to interpret the output of these sensors. And humans are frail and they get tired and they disagree. And so we need to put an intelligent layer between all these sensors and a decision maker. So they made a massive investment in the 80s and 90s in AI, which pushed the technology further, made it practical. So we all have to thank the military for these smartphones and autonomous vehicles and robots on farms because they made that AI possible where now it works. CMU perhaps it's embedded in this old industrial heartland is very much on the idea of practical. You know, they do advanced technology, but they want it to be practical. And in fact, one of the, the earliest work they did in robots was actually in agriculture over 30 years ago, little known fact, and have been in it ever since actually. And the reason is agriculture, they thought would be the biggest beneficiary of automation as we as humans, because of the intense and large labor content that is unique to agriculture. Now it's been a struggle up to now, and I'm speaking now about automation generally on a farm, is because as robot folks say, farms are an unconstrained environment. You know, it may sound strange, but getting a car to move around on a road autonomously is actually a lot easier than getting a tractor to move on a farm. And you think, well, you're likely to hit stuff on a road. Difference, if I'm on a road, it's an organized space. There are curves, there are signs, there are lights. There's all sorts of cues the AI can look at to keep the car on a straight and narrow. On a farm, it's chaotic. It doesn't have all those cues. It's messy. And so robots have struggled on farms because of the unique nature of farms, the physical structure of farms. But that's changed now. That's changed. So this stuff, I, I guess it's a long-winded way of saying this stuff really works. I could not have said that five years ago. Uh, I could not have said that 10 years ago. My first yeah. robot. 
Okay, yeah, I'm going to let you close. Years years Mark, Mark, we're going to insist you come back. Uh, yeah, sign me up. Yeah, no, that's fine. Well, you know, again, you're as advertised. Larry said he just goes and goes and goes, and we want to take advantage of that. Candace, we got to wrap this one up, but I, you know, I can just, I, I want to set the stage for Mark DeSantis, the sequel, but we got, yes. we, we, we got to do a wrap here. We absolutely have to. And Mark, here's what I want to go to. I want to, in episode number two, can we talk about how we collect all the different data points, how we bring them together, how yeah. we analyze them and how we make recommendations to a grower? Because the data is so yeah. overwhelming. Yep. And that is a subject in itself, because I think that's where a lot of uh, companies struggle is they think that, and again, I keep coming back to the military, the military realized that it's not about data. It's about information. You know, if all I do as a technology is take complicated data and turn it into a different kind of complicated data, I haven't done anybody any favors. I haven't, I haven't serviced anybody's needs. Your speedometer on your car actually is quite complicated. Your, your, uh, not your speedometer, your fuel gauge is actually a pretty complicated device. But you just see your mileage and the fuel, and that's it. That's all that matters. That's what you care about. You don't care about the fancy math and the sensors that go into that. Right. It's the same thing on a farm. And I think a lot of techies now are realizing, hey, I can't build something without, you know, I can't just have two conversations with a farmer and then come back with a fantastical tool. That doesn't work. You know what? We're going to stop there. You wrote your own soundbite and, <laughs> and segue to it's not about data. It's about information. So we're going to leave everyone hanging with that. <laughs> and, uh, and then we are going to... Uh, record episode two of the sequel very promptly. But right. Candace, I think the tease worked. They actually lived up to it. You know what? <laughs> that was, it was so fascinating. I really, I totally enjoyed this past hour. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate and it. I will for sure look forward to the second conversation. You know, we, we actually know the producers of this really, really well. So our people will be in touch with your people to get the schedule. Okay. Appreciate well, listen, it. Gentlemen, have a good weekend. And right. Candace, always a pleasure. And uh, we will do this again soon. Thanks for joining us for Voices of the Valley. And we'll be back for another episode very soon. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Western Growers Association, supporting producers that grow the best medicine in the world. Find out more at WGA.com.